What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DeCebedo and this week we have two stories for you. The first is we discuss the landmark win for labor as Amazon workers on Staten Island vote to unionize. Then we discuss the latest climate assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. There's been a slew of high-profile wins for American labor in 2022. Starbucks recently announced it would halt its stock buyback program to invest more profit in its people and stores after workers voted to unionize in early December and more are discussing the same. Recently, workers at an REI store in New York City voted 88 to 14 to unionize and more are discussing the same. But no story this year has been bigger than the decision by Amazon workers at its Staten Island warehouse in New York to unionize. The final vote went like this. 55% of workers at the facility voted in favor of being represented by what's called the Amazon Labor Union, which is an independent and internally formed union. It has no outside influence. It was made by the workers and it will likely be kept by the workers. And so because of that, Staten Island became the first Amazon warehouse in the U.S. to be unionized. And it's been heralded as a generational victory for organized labor in the U.S. And now I put emphasis on the U.S. there because there are, of course, Amazon workers in Europe that are unionized. But it might seem obvious as to why this happened. Workers were unhappy with how they were being treated at the Amazon warehouse. But if you were just to look at Amazon from a policy and structure standpoint, as my colleague and guest Liz Houston, who covers Amazon, told me, you'd see a company that has good benefits in place relative to larger American corporations. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of reasons why you would think that Amazon should be a great place to work. They've been very vocal on the um, $15 minimum wage. Uh, They've had this in place for a few years now, and they've been lobbying for that to be uh, nationally mandated. Uh, Only this week, they've come out and said that they've been voted the number one place where Americans want to work on LinkedIn. So from the outside, this looks like a great employer. The uh, the only way that we're able to see that there some, might be something else going on is when we're tracking all the controversies relating to uh, labour management relations or uh, relating to collective bargaining that seem to come up with, with Amazon. Um, and that's the only thing, really, that gives an indication that there might be something else going on. Controversies or scandals or things that are private then brought into the public sphere because of lawsuits or media reports or... NGOs, allegations, things like that. Some of the controversies that we collected are the alleged poor working conditions and inadequate safety measures for employees during the COVID-19 pandemic, class action lawsuits that claim Amazon withheld bonuses and overtime pay. There's even been accusations of punitive action brought against employees for taking too many bathroom breaks. There's even this controversy we have from 2020 about a former employee at an Amazon fulfillment center in Staten Island named Christian Smalls that filed a legal complaint against Amazon for racial discrimination in his firing. Christian Smalls, of course, became one of the leaders of the union push at Staten Island that we're talking about today. So the writing was on the wall 
for Amazon for some time. And this is where the ESG risks comes in. Academic research is split on the overall impact that unionization has on a company's productivity. So we look at it as neither a good nor bad thing for it to be formed. Yet once that union is formed, or even once big discussions about a union start to begin, in our view, management might want to begin working with their employees to understand why they feel their basic rights aren't being met. Instead, it seems Amazon was intransigent and a bit disorganized in how they responded to employees' concerns in this instance. And the reason for that is because Amazon's strategy is to be anti-union and they have a stated reason for why they are anti-union. They have this stated goal of being earth's best place to work and uh, they believe uh, you know one of their clear strategies is that they believe that unions would get in the way of them achieving this and that it is better for them to have a direct relationship with employees now that may be true it it may be the case that amazon uh, if it wants to be the best employer in the world unions would stand in the way of that it's worth noting that that goes against everything that's you know, generally accepted in global norms. So I think the International Labour Organization, uh, the UN Global Compact, would, would disagree with Amazon on that point. Principle three of the UN Global Compact states that businesses should uphold the freedom of association and the effective recognition of the right to collective bargaining. Amazon does not seem to be doing that. And I should note that most every company that has ever argued against unionization has said exactly the same thing that Amazon is saying. We think we can provide a better workplace by negotiating with our employees directly, which is fine. But it would be important for management to then signal to employees that their concerns will actually be heard and that management is organized in its efforts to address those concerns. However, that does not seem to be the case. Take this leaked memo from a meeting that was forwarded widely to the company by Amazon General Counsel David Sapolsky. It says, Quote, Smalls is not smart or articulate, and to the extent the press wants to focus on us versus him, we will be in a much stronger PR position than simply explaining for the upteenth time how we're trying to protect workers. So for us, for ESG analysts, when we see this type of correspondence, when we see this sort of mismanagement of that correspondence, we think immediately about the, what the board has done and how it has set the top-down culture of a company like Amazon. It's not really clear to what extent the Amazon board has been involved in crafting or even fully endorsing the company's existing anti-union strategy, but this is exactly the sort of question that investors in Amazon and other companies like it are likely to be asking in the coming proxy season. What their strategy was for dealing with this uh, unionization, whether it was something that was being considered at a board level or whether it was something that was being entirely managed further down the chain and whether they needed to, to rethink the level of oversight that they had over cases like this. There's a chance it was just arrogance. A system that had always worked was going to continue to work and nothing was going to stop them because overall companies have had the upper hand for some time in the U.S., Organized labor is at its lowest point ever. There's only around 10% of American workers that are represented by a union. That's a steady decline from the 1980s when rates were around the 20% mark, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. 
Corporate profits have soared while wage increases have been anemic. Amazon CEO, for example, makes 1,236 times more than the average Amazon employee, according to our data. Its competitor, if you can call it a competitor, Target, has a CEO that makes about 105 times the average employee. And this is sort of representative of what America is like in terms of the struggle between corporations and labor. America is alone in the industrialized world and not guaranteeing paid parental leave or paid vacation. Among the 36 OECD countries, only the U.S. and South Korea do not guarantee paid sick days. We have the lowest minimum wage as the percentage of the median wage of the 36 OECD nations. We have the highest percentage of low-wage workers among the 36 except for Latvia, and we work three more weeks than the Brits, four to five more weeks than the French, and six to seven more weeks than the Germans. So how did Amazon lose in a society with such weak labor rights? Maybe this is the beginning of a long-term change in labor relations due to COVID that have been highly discussed. People aren't talking about the great resignation for nothing. There does seem to have been a shift in attitude to work and to um, labor versus employers. Uh, since since the pandemic, uh, I think it's reasonable to expect that you will get more cases like this. There's momentum behind the movement, it seems. Uh, I would suspect that one successful case of unionisation may well lead to more. Amazon itself has another vote coming at another New York warehouse later in April. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that. Um, but I think... Companies really do need to have a think about uh, how they deal with unions and maybe uh, adjust their expectation to uh, the view that maybe there will be more unions and they can't just be anti-union. They have to be better at dealing with unions once they're in place. And that might be seen in what Starbucks is doing. Stock buybacks, no matter their use in providing shareholder wealth, can paint a cold picture when your workers are claiming they don't have basic rights. Or maybe the Amazon union succeeded because unlike other warehouses, their employees have been there more than a couple years. Turnover has been lower at the Staten Island warehouse and so the culture of the warehouse is more formed. Something hard to measure, but a background qualitative input that we pay attention to. Or maybe this really is a due day for labor organization in the US. It's very telling that the Amazon group didn't ally themselves with an existing labor group. They created their own union called the Amazon Labor Union, or the ALU. That's a new form. Usually you would get an outside group to come in, but the Amazon workers decided to take the old and splash it a bit with the new. Take Starbucks. That's another example of how this might be changing. As we're recording this, three more Starbucks, one in Buffalo and two in Rochester, New York, have voted yes on unionization. Last week, the company's flagship store in Manhattan, which voted in favor of a union 46 to 36, became the largest Starbucks to unionize. And Starbucks, like Amazon, has a relatively good set of labor benefits on paper compared to other large American employers. They provide long-term incentives known as Beanstalk. If you want to know what that is, just Google it. And they provide paid sick leave to eligible employees. Remember, I said that's not a guarantee in America. They've been even recognized, like Amazon, as an employer of choice by external organizations. Yet, like Amazon, they have a large, complex workforce that may be going through a change in perception of who holds the power, management or labor. And so companies like Amazon, companies like Starbucks 
they may be dealing with these sort of union risks for years to come. And so we will have to see how these companies can actually manage those risks. This year marks the sixth installment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's report on climate change. The IPCC, as everyone calls it, puts out what can be considered the definitive report on what climate change is doing and will likely do to our world. If you haven't read any of them, I suggest it. It gives more meaning to the expansive term that is climate change, but they are long. And everyone is busy. So today we're going to give you some short takes on the report, specifically on the third part of the IPCC's sixth assessment, and it's titled The Mitigation of Climate Change, and it was released this week on April 4th. By the way, if you're curious, climate change mitigation refers to efforts to reduce or prevent emissions of greenhouse gases. Nothing fancy. Anyway, I called up my colleague, Chris Cody, that covers everything that is climate for us, and I asked him... What stood out for him in this report? And here's what he had to say. This probably doesn't come as a surprise to you, Mike, but I was interested in chapter 15 of the report about finance and investment and climate change. And the report basically says investors are going far too slow. Some colleagues and I have looked at this and we've basically seen that investors have the tools they need to reduce their portfolio emissions and actually drive the real world economy toward net zero, right? reducing emissions significantly over time. Some of the tools they have at their disposal are changing the cost of capital, where we've seen the cost of capital for the emissions-intensive companies, you know, the higher polluters. We've seen that rise over time, compared especially to the lower emitters. Investors can also shape the trajectories and the strategy and the management of companies related to climate change by engaging with them. We've seen instances here and there of this working, but they haven't been doing it enough to accomplish their net zero goals. Finally, investors can also play on a different level, right? They can advocate for policy and regulatory shifts like removing subsidies or enacting a carbon price or some other similar mechanism like a standard and help level the playing field for, let's say, energy providers. And so investors have these levers at their disposal, but they really haven't been using them at the right scale or with the right frequency to reach net zero. Do you have any idea what would be an appropriate carbon tax in your mind per ton of CO2? That's usually what these taxes are, per ton of CO2 equivalent. Right now, I know there's roughly a 70 to $80 US dollar per ton of CO2 equivalent in effect in the EU. I assume it needs to be higher than that because this report says greenhouse gas emissions have risen for every sector and in every region. And even though we have become more efficient, we still have just emitted more on an absolute basis. So it's got to be higher, right? Well, so we can look at this using you know, tools like scenario analysis by sort of seeing, okay, if the carbon price is at this level, you know, what's the effect on companies? And what, you know, if it's at this higher level, what would the effect be? And, you know, a few colleagues and I recently did this looking at um, some European companies and U.S. companies to see, you know, sort of the question that the IPCC is asking in this report. You know, what's the cost of delayed action to these companies or the investors holding them in their portfolios? And what we find out is, you know, for 
at least for some scenarios, delayed action would mean a carbon price rising to four or five hundred dollars in the mid 2030s to keep us on track for this like net zero pathway, keeping you know global temperature rises to to 1.5 or below two degrees. That sounds really extreme, but that could be what it takes at that point if. You know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, coal continues to rise in, in different parts of the world. And just generally, we continue to head in the wrong direction. It could take a major course correction. And, you know, it's sort of like uh, putting off some putting off some of your work, right, where, yeah, you can get it done later, but you're going to have to stay up late at night or you're going to have to put in those extra hours and it's going to be a uh, pretty painful. I think that's the situation we're beginning to face. Yeah, I mean. That's the delayed transition scenario that we've talked about often. And I know you've written about how sectors like the material and energy sectors could face a 60% or so decline in their value if these sort of climate costs come to bear on them in the future. I remember reading once that the IPCC used to put out kind of doom and gloom reports. It was always a bit apocalyptic and people stopped reading them because it was just too hard. Uh, so they started to add in some positives that they were seeing. I'm wondering if you could end us with that, some silver lining that this report discusses or some good news or some uh, advancement that is being adapted in a quicker way than we had expected. It's never been cheaper to try to decarbonize. The cost of solar, the cost of wind, the cost of batteries have all declined very steeply over the last decade making it much easier to try to install those things now, deploy them at scale. So there is an opportunity before us. And I would say, you know, one other reason for some optimism here is that, you know, the investment community has organized itself significantly in the past, uh, you know, year, especially through the the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero and, and other groups, the Net Zero Alliance's and they're gaining steam. There's more rules being discussed for increasing climate disclosures. And, you know, we are on this path. It's just a question of pace at this point and whether uh, the, the level of urgency that the IPCC is highlighting is there. Yeah, we might follow up with some more on this report. It's very long. It's like 3,000 pages. There's a lot in it. Uh, as I said, it's the definitive report usually on uh, what's going on with climate change and how it's likely to affect us in the future. I'll put a link to the report in our podcast and you can read it at your leisure. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Liz and Chris for talking to me about the news with an ESG twist. I want to thank Gabriela de la Serna, who was our researcher for this episode. Thank you so much, Gabriela. And I want to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it always. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. That puts us up on podcast lists and more people can get access to our content. And if you want to hear my voice every week, which I hope you do, then subscribe and our podcast will be downloaded to wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks as always and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast or prediction. The information contained in this recording 
is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.